baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, sir. Welcome to the September 2020 edition of Space Boffins in partnership with the Naked Scientists. I'm Sue Nelson. And I'm Richard Hollingham. And this time we continue our celebration of the International Space Station. We'll be talking about the first US space station, Skylab. And Sue, I have some exciting space patch facts for you. <laughs> you had to really concentrate to say that. Patch yeah. Facts. All right. We'll also be hearing about UK plans for space after Brexit and discussing our relationship with the night sky with our guest, author Dr. Stuart Clark. Stuart, now your new book, it's called Beneath the Night, and it's about how space has shaped human history. Yes, that's right. It's, uh, I mean, specifically, it's the night sky and the stars and how we've always looked up at them and, and wondered what they are and what they mean. This is the most important thing is that I began from a position of just thinking, well, how many other people are as fascinated by the stars as, as I am? And always have been. So I never remember a time when I wasn't absolutely transfixed by the stars, wanted to know what they were and what this much larger universe around us was and meant. And so I started researching to try and find who else had thought those kinds of things in the past and ended up writing a, a book about it because it, it seems like everyone has at, at their own level. And, you know, I ran out of written sources. The earliest written um, documents that we have all reference the stars and the meaning of the stars to life on Earth. So it, uh, it, that's what informed that uh, sort of subtitle about how the stars have shaped the history of humankind. Lovely. And we'll, we'll hear a lot more about your book a little later on. But before that, let's just briefly look at this exciting discovery by a team of astronomers in the UK, USA and Japan about one of our solar system's planets. And for once, it's not Mars. Um, here's Professor Jane Grees from Cardiff University making this unusual announcement about Venus. So what have we done? We're here to tell you we have detected a rare gas called phosphine in the atmosphere of our neighbour planet, Venus. And the reason for our excitement is that phosphine gas on Earth is made by microorganisms that live in oxygen-free environments. And so there is a chance that we have detected some kind of living organisms in the clouds of Venus. So, Stuart, is this something to get excited about? Well, I think it is, but I think it's also something to be very clear about tempering your expectation of as well. Um, because these kinds of s sort of strange chemicals or strange signals, you know, that we, that we occasionally pick up, they're really important and we really need to keep our eyes open for them. Pretty much every time, however, we've seen something like this in the past, it's ended up being not alien life. So I'm, I'm sort of thinking particularly about the methane on Mars. You know, we've got the trace gas orbiter there that's mapping this, and there might there's sort of other ideas that it might be just methane released from falling meteorites and things like that. 
I'm also thinking about the big dimming of Tabby's star that led to the whole alien megastructure um, story as well, and that now seems to be sort of dust clouds in space. Uh, and I'm also reminded of the story from CERN about neutrinos possibly travelling faster uh, than light. And the researchers there did a very, very similar thing. They exhausted all the possibilities that they had. And then they said, OK, now we turn it out over to the, the community. What can you come up with? And, you know, the, the solution was found in, in the equipment or something, I think. So we're at a really exciting moment with this investigation. I, my head tells me it will probably turn out to be non-biological my heart tells me I really want it to be life. Oh well I think my head and heart tell me it will be biological but then that's maybe I'm just much more optimistic. <laughs> I was Not... thinking Stuart's no fun with that answer. I know yeah well it's yeah um, I'm sorry but about partly that. because actually the thing it's likely to be microbes basically in the clouds so it, you know this form of life could be microbes and and there are apparently you know analogies with earth in that there are you can find microbes in the atmosphere and in the clouds on Earth too. You've j- jumped those straight into that I want to believe, haven't you? Of course. You? You've, of you've course. gone, they are microbes in the clouds. Yeah, I am Stuart, Fox Mulder. Look, we've yes. got Stuart here, voice of reason, <laughs> saying they are probably not. Yeah, I have I have the scientific credentials of Scully, but the want to believeness of Fox Mulder, definitely. Still exciting though. Stuart, isn't oh, it? Oh, it's tremendously. too late. He, he just squashed it. He just squashed it. Don't try and rescue it. <laughs> no, always tremendously exciting. Every time you get an uh, sort of an unexplained result or an unexplainable result, you know, then it's it's tremendously exciting. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, the, the the work that these astronomers have done is just absolutely fantastic you know this is what this is what we do science for is for these unexpected curveballs that really challenge us give us something new to think about and always in these situations whatever the final answer turns out to be um, we will have learnt something new and important I'm much happier with that answer actually Stuart thank you very much and I will just quickly before we move on um, say that um, I mentioned you know there was a, an international team this phosphine this this rare gas was detected by the James Clark Maxwell telescope in Hawaii the data was analysed by Professor Greaves and her team in the UK and Japanese astronomers interpreted the data and I love the fact that you know in this what can feel like an increasingly isolated world we're living in not least because of a pandemic that we have this international collaboration absolutely of that's and science. always that's been one of the side benefits i suppose you might call it of of being into astronomy is that it is absolutely global and that there are no boundaries thanks Stuart. we'll talk more to you uh, a little later on now we take it for granted maybe too much for granted that there are people living and working right now in space and there have been continuously not the same people but there have been for 20 years life on the international space station is generally well pretty much without drama but that was absolutely not the case with the first U.S. space station, Skylab. Made out of sections of leftover Saturn V moon rocket, Skylab was launched in May 1973. The idea was that its first crew would launch shortly afterwards. But it didn't go to plan. I've been talking to the author of Homesteading Space, the Skylab story, David Hitt, about the mission and its first crew. 
it's almost impossible today to imagine not knowing the things that Skylab taught us. Everything that we've been doing since Skylab has been built on that foundation. Before Skylab, the idea of doing a spacewalk was uh, so very limited, so very careful, so very meticulously planned. Skylab was the first time that they're out in space and they're having to do things they weren't prepared for. They're having to improvise on a spacewalk. Without Skylab, you don't have the Hubble Space Telescope. You don't, without Skylab, you don't have the assembly of the International Space Station, uh, which took far more spacewalks just in the first few years than the United States and Russia had done put together in all of their uh, spaceflight history before that. While most of the time was devoted to experimentation, a part of the astronauts' day was spent on the more mundane aspects of living. There were meals to prepare cleaning, taking out the garbage, equipment repairs, personal hygiene, and always the exercise. I mean, this whole Skylab program almost came unstuck before it started with that, that first launch and then Pete Conrad's extraordinary spacewalk to fix it. The thing that I like to, uh, to point out um, anytime an astronaut does a uh, spacewalk, they're in the, the big bulky Michelin Man space suits. On that suit, they have a patch, and it's got Leonardo da Vinci's Vitruvian Man in a space suit, and there's a handful of stars around the, uh, the space-suited figure. Um, originally, it was three stars. Today, it's five. Those original three stars were for the three most important spacewalks. Uh, when the patch was created. One of those was Ed White making the first U.S. spacewalk, obviously a huge milestone for, uh, for American human spaceflight. The, uh, the second star was for Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin walking on the surface of the moon. Uh, you know, not only a milestone for, uh, for American human spaceflight, but a, a milestone for humankind. Uh, but the third star was for Pete Conrad and Joe Kerwin, performing the spacewalk that saved Skylab after those problems after launch, that when that patch was made, NASA considered that uh, spacewalk by Pete and Joe to, to save Skylab as on a par with the first U.S. spaceflight, with the first steps on the moon. And the reality is, in a lot of ways, in terms of everything that's come since, that third spacewalk probably was perhaps more influential than those first two, which is... Uh, hard to believe, but arguably very true. So talk us through what happened. So Skylab launches and it breaks essentially on launch. If it had stayed as it was, it would have been uninhabitable. I mean, it was just way too hot inside. And the first crew had to had to fix it. We have ignition sequence has started. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. And we have a liftoff. The Skylab lifting off the pad now, moving up. Skylab launches, and if you're there on the ground, if you're looking up at it, if you're watching it take off, it is a beautiful launch. I, I never had the privilege of seeing a uh, Saturn V. I missed them by a little bit, but you know, by all accounts, it was something to see. It was uh, it was quite a show when they when they left the ground. Beautiful from the ground. In the control room, the story's a little bit different. They start getting weird telemetry. They're getting data that, that makes no sense. And what had happened was, during ascent, the workshop had a 
meteorite shield, a heat shield around the uh, around the surface of the uh, of the the Saturn stage that had been converted into Skylab. There was a little bit of space between the shield and the uh, the structure of the stage. That's how it worked as a heat shield. It kept the heat from reaching the uh, the structure of the the stage. Airflow got between the heat shield and the structure of the workshop, ripped the heat shield off. In doing so, it released the two solar arrays. Skylab was supposed to have two giant solar panel wings on either side. One of them deploys during launch. And if you've ever stuck your hand out of the window of a car, you kind of feel that air pressure. Now imagine that not at, you know, uh, 60 miles per hour or, or 100 kilometers per hour for our... Uh, <laughs> For our, for our non-American audience, and, and you're going to feel pressure. Now multiply that to uh, you know to thousands of, of kilometers per hour, and you start thinking about the incredible pressure it was experiencing. It just rips off completely. The other wing, when the heat shield was ripped off, a, uh, a strap of metal swung back around and looped around that array wing. It kept it from deploying completely, which saved it from being ripped off like the other one, but it also meant that it was stuck. So when Skylab reaches orbit, you have a wounded bird. You have a space station there in orbit, but you've got two hugely critical problems. One, like you talked about, it's overheating. The heat shield is gone. The thermal environment inside is, is out of control. It's getting beyond even the levels that they tested for. At the same time, you're not generating the, uh, the electric power that you're supposed to be. It still had a second set of solar arrays, the, uh, the famous windmill at the, uh, the top of the space station that was there for the Apollo telescope. Thankfully, somebody before launch said, hey, why don't we connect the power systems so that windmill now is generating power for the entire workshop, but it's just a fraction of what it's supposed to have. Here in the control center, the problems associated with the failure of the Saturn workshop solar panels to deploy are being discussed at some length by management and flight controllers. NASA's got a wounded bird in orbit. They don't know what they can do to, to save it. The first crew was supposed to launch the very next day. Well, we can't do that. We're not ready. We've got to figure things out. The way the orbits work, there's an opportunity every five days to send a crew to Skylab. Five days is too soon. They're not going to be able to do it the first opportunity. We need more time to get ready. We're going to do it on the second opportunity. We are going to do this in, in 10 days. We're going to go from having a, a nearly losing a space station to sending a crew to save it. It is impossible to overstate how insane <laughs> that was. If you look at the history of the of the space industry, things don't happen in 10 days. Like this is not this is not a thing that happens. And yet there is this huge nationwide effort. I mean, this is not just a handful of people getting in a room to solve this problem. This is numerous teams all over the country all working in parallel in various aspects of this problem to figure out what can be done. And they didn't know exactly what to expect, did they? Because, I mean, there's no pictures. They didn't, they sort of knew from telemetry what had happened, but it wasn't like there was a camera there saying, right, this is how we're going to fix it. This is what's going to happen. A, a little of both. A lot of it was driven by the telemetry. The, uh, the data that they're getting back was the thing that initially alerted them, hey, we've got something going on here. Um, at the same time, um, 
Major world governments sometimes have assets in orbit that allow them to look at things that, uh, that maybe they don't like to talk about a whole lot. And uh, so there was a little bit of, uh, of initial, you know, pre-launch um, data obtained from own orbit that, that helped inform that process some. So they weren't completely blind, but no, you're right. I mean, it's not like we had a, uh, you know, there were, there were no cameras on Skylab to, uh, to, to send that imagery back from the, uh, from the outside. So when the astronauts approach in the Apollo spacecraft... They get to look at it for the first time properly. They presumably would have seen some of these images. Uh, They would have a very good idea and would have trained for what they thought to expect. But then they've got to deal with it and they've got to improvise. I can't imagine what all was going through their minds as they're they're approaching that space station and, and seeing it for the first time, um, you know, before they even go inside. They uh, they attempt to stand up EVA. They're going to try and free the array wing by literally just opening the door of the Apollo capsule. They're you know in their spacesuits, obviously, opening the door of the the spacecraft. Um, one astronaut's reaching out through the door while while the others are holding on to him to uh, to try and let him free the uh, free the the stuck solar wing. Um, doesn't work. They they finally give up on that. Um, they're going to go dock with the, uh, the, the space station. Initially, there's a, a bit of trouble docking with the space station. At last contact over the Vanguard tracking station, the crew of, Apollo, of Skylab 2 was having difficulty in redocking. They'd made several attempts and were going down through the backup procedures for retracting in and extending the probe. Then it's time to open that door. And that was supposed to be this amazing moment, right? I mean, in the in, in all of the planning and all of the training, this is America's first space station. You are about to be the first astronauts in it. This is a, a huge milestone, a huge culmination of all this work that's gone into it. In reality, they are there and they're on one side of this hatch and the space station is on the other side of this hatch. And this space station has been exposed to incredibly high temperatures for 10 days with things that weren't designed for those temperatures inside it. The question going through everybody's mind is, is the atmosphere toxic, right? This moment that was supposed to be, this is so exciting, we're going into a space station for the first time, is now, are we going to die when we open the hatch, right? <laughs> that's, that's a very different sort of moment. Uh, but they do, you know, and, and they, uh, you know, they pick, I believe it was, uh, uh, Paul White. You'd have to check me against the book, but, uh, but I believe it was, uh, Paul White that gets to be the, uh, the canary in the mine to, uh, to go in and <laughs> let's, let's make sure he doesn't die before the, uh, <laughs> the other two join him. And I suppose as well, it's slightly different to now. So if there's a spacewalk now, they're in constant contact with, you know, astronauts outside the space station are in constant contact with the space station and in constant contact usually with the ground as well. They they were doing a lot of this stuff in the blind, weren't they? They were doing it, just getting on with it. Here's your task, get the space station working. And they did it. Yes. Now, I mean, for, certainly, you know, they, they had their uh, they had their uh, uh, their AOS, their acquisition of signal, the times that they were uh, that they were able to talk to the ground. But you're right. Very different than uh, than today with the uh, with the the Tedris satellites that give you constant communication. 
they would try to, you know, if we were doing something that's life or death, let's maybe do that at a time that, uh, <laughs> that, that we can call home if we need to. But yeah, the day-to-day operations and, and the day-to-day operations of living and working in a, in a crippled space station, no, they were, a lot of that, they were, like you say, in the blind. This is Skylab Control, 18 hours, 18 minutes, Greenwich Mean Time. Uh, we've had loss of signal at Texas. Uh, tracking ship Vanguard will acquire in about nine minutes. The solar array wing is out. Bolt cutters uh, successful uh, in severing that aluminum strap. And that first crew, I mean, turned it round and turned what was a rescue mission into a science mission, into what they were originally assigned to do. The first laboratory, really, in space. I mean, you have to remember that the the Soviet Union also had its own laboratories in space with with the Salyut program. This is the first American science mission really you know it wasn't just uh let's beat the soviet union this was a science mission yes yes and uh and i and i will you know a little bit of uh a little bit of american pride because you know that's that's a conversation that well it wasn't the first space station uh if you define a space station as an orbiting platform staffed by multiple crews uh skylab was there had never been a facility in which multiple different uh, crews of astronauts came and stayed, so it was a uh, it was a first in that respect. Um, but yes, like you say, I mean, it was it earned its name. It was a lab in the sky, very much a a functional scientific facility doing, I would say, groundbreaking. But uh, but there's no ground uh, <laughs> science up in orbit. David Hitt, author of Homesteading Space, the Skylab story, talking about the first Skylab crew that was led by Pete Conrad with Jay Kerwin and Paul White. I, I love Skylab. Skylab is kind of my mission because it was the first I remember of space. So when Skylab launched, the first one was, what, 1973, but then it went on for a kind of year or so. And so I remember on TV with the astronauts floating around that enormous structure. It was kind of how space stations should have been. Do you remember anyone? Anyone? No, no one comments. No one remembers. I'm, I'm, sort of the point. No I'm one still in a, a state of shock that you say, I think because maybe I hang out with older people, is that normally the thing they say their first memory is of the moon, moon, landing. moon landing, not Skylab. So that's why I didn't say anything because my jaw was on the table. Stuart, do you remember Skylab? <laughs> yeah, I think I do remember Skylab. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, it 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 felt to me at the age I was um, nothing really very remarkable. I just thought this was just you know what happened. Um, you know that was the as I was sort of learning about the world and what we do around us. You know just space stations and all of that. I was totally fascinated by it, but I didn't realise that it was a sort of a high water mark really um, for you know American space exploration until much much later on and a sort of I don't know. I, I don't know. Am I allowed to say a failed experiment, Richard? No, well, know. you have to you have to read um, David Hitt's book because the, the, very much the impression he gives is it, it wasn't that that actually it was mm. much more of a success than we give it credit for. So uh, mm. I think I think we've learned a lot from Skylab. Although you look at some of the things with it, and oh, I didn't talk to David about this, but uh, the shower. Who puts a shower in space? 
Who designed? <laughs> I mean, have they not heard of microgravity? Have they not heard of what happens to water in space? I mean, there's some. Lo- you look at the design of Skylab. It's like they designed it with gravity in mind. It's it's great though because when it's funny that Stuart, you know, you said you just sort of took it for granted when when you were younger, and then I totally relate to that and it wasn't until for me much later either I was at the Air and Space Museum in Washington where they've got the sort of flight model duplicate or whatever it is, it is. It's, yeah it's it is exactly yeah. Yeah. yeah and it wasn't until I was walking in there that I got that wow this is this is something else this is really quite amazing and particularly when you compare it with the mock-ups of the space station parts that you get at Houston and that you get at ESA uh, in Cologne which they the astronauts use for training it seems on a different scale and a different level and it, it looks much more comfortable and spacious and I suppose more Arthur C. Clarke type science fiction. I think that's that's what it looks like. I think than than the sort of wires out tin can that the space station can can feel. feel Uh, We'll have more about Skylab in the next Space Boffins, including more on the mutiny that wasn't. This is the Space Boffins podcast. We're in partnership with the Naked Scientists. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and probably Instagram. (laughs) I know, it's so terrible. (laughs) I know, I keep losing it. Uh, But do get in touch, whichever way. We'd we'd love to um, hear from you. Um, Stuart Clark is with us. He's the author of the beautifully written Beneath the Night. Well, everything you write, Stuart, is is pretty beautiful, to be honest. Oh, thank you. And, yeah, it's it's lovely. You gave us a description at the start there of of what you were aiming for. And, and, And this... The fact that humanity has has always looked for meaning in 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 the stars. What were the sort of earliest times then that that mankind that we know of or, or have records of? Obviously, because I'm pretty sure people will have thought this before. It was all written down that they thought what they were seeing at night had some sort of either meaning or influence on our lives. Yeah, so it it certainly predates writing. And by the time you get to writing, there's a Sumerian document called the um, uh, the, the Kesh Temple Hymn. And by the time you get to that, uh, one of the first pieces you know of writing that we have, um, there's a very clearly defined um, relationship between the earth and the heavens um, that's all put into that into that work that tells us that the the gods take care of the sort of the environment and and we do the gods work on earth and and Kesh this city is kind of like this the the, the conduit between um, earth and the godly realm of the stars so i started to look from from sort of prehistory and and before writing and to see what we could find um in there as well and i think one of the uh you know you can't ever be certain about this kind of stuff but one of the things that struck me um hugely was the Lasco paintings in the in the or the, the the paintings in the cave at Lasco um in France and they have the hall of the bulls and in there this enormous um meters long picture of a bull um is drawn and just above its shoulder is a grouping of dots that look for 
all the world like the Pleiades, the Seven Sisters. And they're in exactly the same location above the bull's shoulder that they now are above the constellation of Taurus. And it absolutely, there's been quite a lot of discussion about whether these really are um, the Pleiades uh, or not. But it just struck me that um, if they truly are that, then that artist from whatever it was, 17,000 years ago, was going through the same process of imagination when he or she stood out um, under the stars and imagined a bull in that location as I do today and as anybody else does. And so by our contemplation of the, the, the stars that we see around us, you know, this is a common human experience, um, not just of our modern age, but for any human that's ever lived. You know, you go into, you know, the heavens, the music of the spheres, astrology. Astrology is an interesting one because for, you know, most people with any sort of scientific background, we were very sniffy about astrology but obviously it, it is an important <laughs> part of the history of, of astronomy at, at what point did superstition become science yeah this is super interesting actually because um the one conclusion that i came to whilst researching the book and so the thing that i sort of interweave throughout the narrative is that there's a constant back and forth between enchantment of the night sky and sort of philosophy and science and and practical use of the night sky so it's possible that some of the very earliest people used the night sky as a calendar. I mean, I think that that seems that seems really quite well established now. And then later, as we try to explain the forces of nature, well, astrology starts to come into the picture as being a kind of influence from the heavens that creates weather and storm patterns and the physical conditions of the earth. So when it begins, astrology is almost a, is a step away from religion and the idea that gods and, and sort of supreme consciousnesses are creating the forces of nature and it's trying to actually take things in a sort of a physical direction and it's only when you get to oh I should tell you that sort of in the sort of 17th century that's the big watershed that is the time at which we we break this idea um, that there are these mystical um, forces coming from the planets and making the conditions on the earth um, and that's the time of Newton and Galileo, people like that, and the whole rise of science. Now, uh, and then astrology makes. Sorry, carry on, Richard. Well, yeah. I, I was just, I, it's just you know, you talked about our relationship on Earth with uh, the night sky, but I suppose if space boffins is about anything, it's about space flight. But this idea, when did that arise that we would actually travel into this? into this realm uh, because I mean a lot of the I, I've, I know we, we've worked before and we worked on the essay, some essays for Radio 3 I, I love this idea of, of cosmism where it becomes almost a, a religion that we should travel among the stars or, or, or we're all part of the same realm 
Yes, this is absolutely um, fascinating. It's in the 19th century that cosmism is born in Russia, and the, the, the father of it really is Nikolai Fyodorov. And what he believes is that he's, he's um, you know, a, a very religious um, person, a Christian, and he believes that technology science and the sort of perfection of medicine and science will make us immortal and if we become immortal um, then we will rapidly run out of space on the earth um, more than that he believes if we truly understand how to keep people alive forever then we will be morally obliged to try to resurrect the dead with this technology as well and bring back the previous generations to life and we will need to expand into the, the wider universe um, in order uh, to have enough space for everybody and he sees this as a way of achieving sort of like the biblical promise of everlasting life in the kingdom of heaven he just he sees that's how you do this is through through technology and science and that's what sparks the the the, the, the russian space program which you know inspires the americans that's what i find extraordinary is that this actually fed into the space race and and there's still some of this idea even today yes it's all about you know the uh, you know technology is by definition um progress and a good thing and can help make our lives better now at the same time as that was happening there were a whole other group of people that felt that was completely wrong and they revived the ideas of spiritualism uh, and that we there was the true reality is like a hidden realm and concentrating on materialism and technology occults that um, view from us so this occultism is that there's this spiritual realm and that gave rise to what we now think of as astrology daily horoscopes and things like that um, and it also gave rise to sort of new age thinking and the counterculture of the 1960s that opposed um, the, the, the space flight. Stuart Clark, thank you for giving us such a poetic um, overview of uh, what is a fascinating uh, book. Now give me its full title because I like the subtitle to it. Beneath the Night... How the Stars Have Shaped the History of Humankind. There you go. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you for joining us, Stuart, again. It's my pleasure, always. <laughs> Great. I always feel when I hear Stuart, because he speaks so poetically. I use that word. You can't use okay. it again. You can use another <laughs> one. Other word, eloquently. Oh, very nice. Erudite. Eruditely. That mm -hmm. he should be presenting this and not us. Because <laughs> <laughs> he can speak yeah. so well. We can say stuff. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Yeah, exactly. Oh. No, he's fantastic. So, uh, no, it, it's, a, it's a lovely book. Um, and actually, if you want to hear Stuart, if you want to hear Stuart's lovely voice, um, he's made several essay series for Radio 3, which I've produced. Um, so if you just look up Radio 3, probably Radio 3, Stuart Clark. Radio 3, Music of the Spheres is a particularly nice mm. series. And that ties in with the book nicely, yeah. actually. So that's, yeah, exactly. So uh, do have a listen to that. And that has original music in as well, Music of the Spheres. And there's another one, uh, Beneath the Night. They've both gone out in the last year or so. So if you like a Should bit of uh, yeah, late night Stuart Clark essay action. Look, we're beginning to sound like his pimp now. <laughs> that's, really, that's, that's I think we should move on. Anyway, right? very, very good. Okay.
That's the sound of 34 satellites being launched from French Guiana as part of the OneWeb satellite constellation. Shortly afterwards in March, London-based OneWeb filed for bankruptcy. Well, since then, the UK government, along with Indian company Bharti Global Limited, have stepped in to buy OneWeb. It could form part of a new satellite navigation system now that the UK is no longer part of Europe's Galileo, a consequence of Brexit. The UK is also being excluded from some aspects of the European Earth Observation System, Copernicus. Well, I've been speaking to Arfan Chowdhury, Head of International Policy for the UK Space Agency, and I began by asking him how the UK Space Agency is addressing the Brexit challenges or whether they're seeing this as a positive. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I actually view this as an opportunity for us. It's allowed us to look at different views, different angles in terms of developing our own programs. And you'll hear us talk a little bit about our own national programs that sit alongside our ESA contribution. So we've got Brexit. We've got programs of work that we have, for example, the European Space Agency, and we're a founding member of the European Space Agency back in 1975. We'll continue to be a member of the European Space Agency long after we've left the EU, and that will continue. And in fact, we've increased our investment program into ESA. But, as I say, what it does do is allow us the opportunity to look at other programs of work, for example, position navigation timing and the process of work that we might take for Copernicus and the other aspects of it. And we're working with other government departments in terms of developing and identifying those capabilities. So I suppose this is where OneWeb comes in, the government's putting a considerable amount of money into part purchasing OneWeb. So that's, you know, taking having a national program to, to do something that was going to be a, a Europe-wide program. Is that, the, is that the thinking? I think it's important aspect of us is, yes, there's an, an intent to work alongside uh, national programs of work. So when you look at some of our key European partners in ESA, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, alongside their ESA contributions, they have strong national programs of work which help to develop their own economic infrastructure and base and i think that's what we're trying to do with our own program of work particularly through na- uh, the nsip there's an international element of that that will look at bilateral engagement with the most key strategic partners but absolutely they will be complementing each other very much so what the national space innovation program with the international element does for us as a space varying nation is gives us further options for industry and academia so it's not just simply the ESA route it gives us a layer of options in the context of that and bottom line there are over a hundred space varying nations across the globe now either through dedicated space agencies or a capability that they're looking to develop and we're wanting to look at both the upstream and the downstream elements of that i head up the international policy team and my illustrious predecessor chris lee spent much of his time traveling the world building and developing forging these international strategic relationships the challenge we had is that we didn't have our own dedicated national international budget in which to develop uh, programs of work and activity there are spacefaring nations and particularly some of our key strategic partners that are looking to collaborate bilaterally with the UK and it's now the opportunity for us to seize on those and develop those opportunities. But I mean compared to the sort of budgets you're talking about that France or or Germany or Italy put into their national programs I mean you're talking what here about 150 million you said maximum I mean that's peanuts compared to the sort of I mean they're talking billions they put into their into their national programs. 
I, I absolutely agree. I think there's a degree of relativity in the context of that. I think the issue for us is that we've got this first year of the National Space Innovation Programme, and it's designed to be a sort of pilot pathfinder year, helping us to develop and identify the means and method and the approach that which we will look to engage both from a national and initial international perspective. But as I say, there's work we're doing right now in terms of feeding into the Comprehensive Spending Review, which will look at enhancing the national and the international programmes, as well as developing capability within the UK as well. Look, we'll look to enhance that and support that. Um, you're right, the relative in terms of France, Germany, some of the programmes there, but the ambition, the intent and the direction is right, is my view. You've just had this National Space Innovation Programme, the first round of that. I mean, what sort of things is that producing? So, in addition to those that we've already highlighted, I think there are UK-SA collaboration where there are 19 international countries, but we engage quite frequently over and above uh, our commitments through ESA. And, and certainly coming out in September, we've got the International Partnership Programme. Uh, this, the formal announcements for 10 new projects worth somewhere in the region about 3.3, 3.5 million pound will be assigned. And those projects are effectively looking at space-based solutions that protect wildlife and habitats in Kenya. They are tracking modern slavery and human trafficking in Uganda and helping rehome displaced people from settlements in Colombia. And that programme, so it takes us beyond Europe, uh, usual traditional partners you'd expect to see in terms of the Five Eyes community, but we're promoting international cooperation through agreements and joint projects. So Kenya, Mongolia, Tanzania, UAE. And, and again, those will encourage foreign direct investments from companies such as Thales Alenia Space, Lockheed Martin, Demos and Comdev. And with these international partnership programmes, is space the best solution then? Or is this looking for ways to use space? I think space is part of the solution and I think it very much part of a collaborative nature with the governments concerned, identifying the benefits and the advantages that space enabled information and technology and capabilities can provide and I've seen firsthand how it helps countries develop their strategy for crop uh, crop growth and where those should be developed and, and also space weather and the ability to track the weather forecasting uh, particularly in countries in Latin America where they have significant challenges. Arfan Chowdhury from the UK Space Agency and thanks to the UK Space Agency for supporting the podcast. Do get in touch with any thoughts, ideas, comments. In fact, one idea, um, Dave Everts, who's a, a regular listener, um, Dave suggested that we had a, definitely had a Space Boffins mission patch or badge. In fact, he sent me a beautiful picture of one that he'd um, designed himself for his astronomy. Uh, was it an astronomy organisation? Oh, sorry, Dave, I haven't got it in front of me now to remember what it was, but I do know it was very stylish. So I think we ought to do that at okay. some stage, have, even if it's like a limited edition of one. <laughs> <laughs> I have thoughts for t-shirts and mugs and pens. A whole, I have a whole marketing <laughs> strategy. Okay. okay. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. thanks for listening.